Let me ask you this question. How many of you like a really good deal? Like a two-for-one deal? Or you know, like on infomercials, they're very famous for this statement, but wait, there's more, you know, Uh, because you think the deal's already really good, and then they just throw something on top. Uh, and like Amazon, what's their kind of, their thing is free shipping for a lot of their stuff, and so it's like that. Yeah, I'll buy I'll buy a ton of stuff from you because I don't have to pay anybody else to get it here. So that's a great deal. So we like deals. Uh, so today's message is is a good deal. It's a two for one sale. So we've been in this series called 2020, uh, talking about perfect vision for our church and for your life for this new year. And uh, so we're going to finish up today uh, with a two for one deal. So every week we've been looking at a different church. Uh, from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where John gets this revelation of Jesus. And before he gets to all the apocalyptic sort of stuff that kind of freaks everybody out, he starts out with a message to to seven specific churches. These are churches that John, who had this revelation, actually pastored, or six of them he started, he planted himself. So we've been looking at one church every week, but today we're going to look at two churches, two for one. And no, we're not going to be here for an hour and a half. I'm going to try to be done expeditiously, because I know we have something afterward here as well. So it's a two-for-one deal. But today, uh, we're going to talk about two things that don't maybe go together, but boy, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to make it happen. We're going to talk about uh, vomit and zombies today. That's your two-for-one deal. That's where we're going today. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So we're going to look at, again, the final church that Jesus has a message to in Revelation chapter 3, and then the fifth of seven, kind of two of the last three. We're going to finish up with these today with this two-for-one deal. The first church is in a city called Laodicea. Laodicea is the name of the city, and so the church was there. And uh, what we're going to see is, if you pick it up from last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. So we're looking at the last three churches in the last two weeks of this series. So Ephesus, we saw, they were they had kind of lost focus as a church. They'd kind of lost their perspective as a church. They had lost sort of the drive to do what they're doing. We're going to see today in these other two, these last two churches, sort of a downward progression from there. So Ephesus had lost their focus, and now we're going to see Laodicea is really even worse, even worse than Ephesus. So here is the message that Jesus has for this church. We'll read it together today. And uh, then we'll look, we'll look through it for a few minutes this morning. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Jesus says, Write this letter to the angel in the church of Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. He wants them to, you know, their portfolio to kind of be very diversified here, all right? Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. And then Jesus said, this is important. He says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. 
So the way to describe this church of Laodicea is what I would call the sickening church. Or really, what we see here is it's called traditionally the lukewarm church. The most famous line that we read here is one that is not really understood very well. Uh, And it's interesting to look at really the the true meaning historically uh, behind what he's saying here. So the main line here that he's saying is, hey, you're, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you would be one or the other. Now, some people are puzzled by what that means because you're like, well, you would say, well, if they're hot, then they're really pro-Jesus, they're doing their thing, they're doing things right, and if they're cold, then they're like against him and they're not really faithfully following him. So does Jesus really, would he rather me not follow him at all than not follow him like red hot? Is that what he's saying? It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't follow in line with what Jesus really seems to be saying here, and it's really not. But what he's saying here has cultural significance to this city. What we've seen here, I hope you've noticed this is that his specific message to each church is very specific to each church. The language that he uses, the imagery that he uses, is specific to that city, that church in that city. This this one is no different. There's a lot of imagery here that we're going to cover very quickly this morning. So what does he mean when he's saying, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but you're neither one? So here's what we see. So Laodicea is sort of in the middle of a valley geographically. On one side of the valley is this mountain range that has an ice cap. It has ice caps on top of these mountains. They're snow-covered mountaintops. And so when it begins to melt, the water that comes down is so cold and so refreshing and so life-giving. And so what the people in this city did, they were ingenious. They built an aqueduct to to capture this ice-cold mountain water all the way from the mountain to the city as part of their water they would drink from. And then, so then he says, though, you're also not hot. What does that mean? Well, if you look on the other side of the valley, there's an area of a lot of hot springs. And so people would go there and they would find healing and refreshment. They'd go there maybe on a vacation. You know, if they're trying to, you know, like cut weight, if they're a boxer, they'd go there and just sweat it out maybe. I don't know. Uh, So what they would do is they also would funnel water from the hot springs um, to try to get that same sort of thing in their city. And they would also use that for drinking water. Here's the problem. The distance that they had to cover with these aqueducts, by the time the cold water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. By the time the hot water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So this city was known for having terrible water. Terrible water. People would literally do what Jesus says here, I'm going to spew you, spit you, almost vomit you out of my mouth here. That's the imagery here. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Anybody like uh, coffee? Have you noticed something weird about coffee shops? (laughs) They sell either really hot coffee that like burns your tongue off, or they sell iced coffee that's just refreshing and wonderful. Have you noticed that coffee shops don't typically sell lukewarm coffee? Have you ever noticed? That's really weird to me that they just, just, if it's sitting out too long at a restaurant, the, the server will come by and they'll refill it with hot coffee, right? That's what they do because they know this is gross. And so Jesus is like, here, here, I'm going to be just for a second. Now, don't be offended. I'm going to be Jesus for just like literally 20 seconds. And then after that, the universe will go back to how it should be. All right. And here's the church he's describing. Now, it's not coffee. Here's the thing. I don't care what coffee's like. I hate it. So this analogy means coffee means nothing to me. But water, now water's not the same because some of y'all like Luke room temperature water? A lot of people do. You can just guzzle it, guzzle it. Now, this is somewhat room temperature, so I'm going to pretend this is coffee that's been sitting out for hours. This is what Jesus is like. Hey, this is the church right here. Watch this. 
Mm. Oh, you know, that's what he's doing here. And he's like, here, I'll just do this while I'm at it. Because I'm not going to drink this. It's just a waste. That's going to be fun to clean up later. Good job, Stephen. He did it. All right. So that's what he's doing here. He's saying, hey, guys, you got to be one or the other. Like, you got to figure it out. And so here's what he's saying with this analogy of hot water and cold water. Cold water is, from the mountains is refreshing. He's saying, hey, part of the mission of a church is to be refreshing to the community around you. And you're not doing that. And he's saying, hey, if you're not going to do that, another mission of a church is to be hot, like, like to bring healing, to provide that to people, like a hot spring would. He's like, you're not, you're not doing that either. So he's like, you're, really, the word here would be useless. You're useless. So the question is, how, how did they get this way? How did this church make Jesus, like, literally gag? How did they get to this point to where it was offensive to him? Well, how they did that was they became self-reliant. They focused on their own self-reliance as a church. So the city of Laodicea, as we'll talk about in just a second, a little bit more in detail, they were a pretty wealthy, well-to-do city. It would stand to reason that the church then, the people that attended this church, would also be fairly well-to-do. So what's happened here is the church has decided, hey, we're, we're fine, we're on our own, we can take care of ourselves, and so they don't rely upon them, they rely upon themselves instead of upon God to meet their needs and provide the mission to their community. Now, here's the thing. In a Western society, as Americans, self-reliance is a great thing, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody's help. I'm independent. Those are good traits. But spiritually, it's the worst. So self-reliance is really spiritual self-deception. When I begin to think, well, I can, I can do it on my own, I don't really need to rely upon God for anything, like I've got enough money in the bank, and I'm pretty healthy, and you know, I, I'm pretty intelligent, and I'm pretty, pretty well-to-do. You know, that's, that's where a lot of our culture really is. Self-reliance is really spiritual self-deception. We see that here in this church because Jesus lists three things that they are, and he says, you don't even know that you have these issues spiritually. He says, you're, you're so unaware of your issues, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that you don't see that you're in danger here. And here's, he lists three things, again, that are all specific to this city and the church in this city. So he says three things. First, he says, you don't even realize that you're poor. Because he says, you say you're rich. I have everything I need. I don't need anything. I don't want for anything. Life is great. So he says, you don't realize that you're poor. Now, the reason that he says this is the reason that Laodicea is a well-off city. That's because it was really the center of the banking industry in that region of the world. There's even some stories that, or some accounts that it was one of the first cities to ever actually make uh, coins as their currency. So instead of trading goods or services or grain or, or whatever like that, they actually, hey, we're going to mint these metal coins and use them as currency. They're one of the first uh, cities in the world to do that. So they had all they needed, and the church really seemed to as well. So they stopped relying upon God. So Jesus says, hey, how do you, if you're spiritually poor, how do you get out of that? Well, he says you need to buy purified gold from me. So basically, Jesus is saying kind of your, your religious activity is really not worth anything. Like you need pure spirituality, you need a pure sort of method for the church, and that comes through relying upon me. Buy the gold from me. Buy the security from me. So then you can do the work I've really called you to do. The second thing that he says to this church is you don't even realize that you're blind. Now, that's a hard one maybe to not know. 
but apparently uh, they did. Now, this one is also specific because in Laodicea was one of really the first ancient medical schools. Not only did they have this medical school, but they had really uh, one thing that they specialized in, and they were known for having this sort of powder that would help to cure eye ailments. You see, Jesus is using specific language on purpose. He's not just using analogies. Just be, I haven't used that one for a while. I feel like I'm going to use this analogy of being blind. No, he, he knows the city very well. He knows the people. So he's using language they're going to immediately understand. He says, you're blind, knowing they have really an eye care medical school where they, where they make this ointment or they make this powder to kind of cure eye ailments. So he says, you're, you're blind here. You're, he says, you're known for what you've done, but you're not doing anything, and you think that you're so accomplished, and you're really not. So he says, you need to buy ointment for your eyes. There's a proverb that says, where there is no vision, the people perish. That's what's happening here at this church. They have no vision. They have no idea of what really they are to be doing. They don't realize that they're not doing what they ought to be doing. They're, they're blind. They're aimlessly wandering around. They had lost their vision. They had lost their purpose as a church. He says, you need to buy ointment for your eyes so that you can see clearly. And then the third thing he says here to them is, you don't even realize that you're naked. Now, that might be the toughest one of all to not realize that you are, okay? He says, you don't realize that you're naked. Again, historically, culturally, here's why Jesus uses that analogy. Laodicea is also known in the fashion industry in that time of the world. So there's a very specific type of sheep, a black sheep. In this case, it's a good thing. Okay, Normally we think a black sheep is like, mm, stay away. For them, that's how they made their little niche in the, in the industry. They would shear these black sheep, and then they would make these garments, these dark-colored garments that would be more expensive to purchase in the marketplace. So he's saying, hey, you're you're known for clothing people, but you yourselves as a church are naked. You're exposed. It reminds me of the story, The Emperor's New Clothes. You know that story? So this emperor, who he has these two swindlers. We know that they're not good guys at the beginning because Hans Christian Andersen tells us so. He come, they come to town and they say, hey, we've got this brand new type of fabric and only the wise and only the best of the best, only the greatest can see the beauty of our garments. And, but to everybody else, it's invisible. And so, but really there's nothing there, right? That's the whole scheme. They're pretending to make these garments with their, with their uh, you know, stuff here and nothing's happening. And they're taking tons of money and supplies from the emperor and his kingdom to do nothing. And so they make these clothes and they show the, emperor, they show the emperor's guys and they're all like, we don't want to, we, we're not stupid, are we? Like, there's really nothing there. But if I say there's nothing there, I'm going to be known as unwise, as a fool. And I don't want to have that reputation. So they say, oh, it's beautiful. And they describe it in great detail, all the colors and all the ornate detail. And then they show the emperor and he's got the same reaction. Like he knows there's nothing there, but he's like, okay, I can't, I can't be a fool. They said only fools can't see this. And so he's like, oh, it's wonderful. It's great. It's like, why don't you try it on a parade down Main Street? Right? That seems like a great idea. And so he, he's fooled himself, just like this church has, to, to try to make himself appear as something that he's not. He puts on nothing, and he walks down the street. And all the people know what's going on, too. They know that 
Only the wise, only the intelligent, only the best of the best can see the beauty of these garments. And everybody else that doesn't is just a total idiot. And so I don't want to be that. So, oh, they're, go, this is, oh, you've never looked better. And you've been working out, haven't you? You know, uh, I don't know how I can tell that, but it's just very form-fitting, you know. And so then all of a sudden, what happens? A child who knows better says, why is the emperor naked? He's naked. He's not wearing any clothes on. And so then the kind of then at that point, everybody's eyes are then opened, and then they're like, okay, we give in. And the story really ends. He just keeps walking down Main Street completely naked. He's exposed in more ways than one now, uh, and, but that's just he just won't give in. He, he wants to be deceived rather than realize, hey, this is not working. That's kind of how this church has been. They deceive themselves through their own self-reliance that they're naked and don't even realize it. So Jesus says, hey, you should buy garments from me. You sell these expensive garments, now you need to buy them spiritually from me. There's imagery all throughout scripture about righteousness. And there's either God's righteousness through Christ or self-righteousness. And in both really in both ways really, it's the idea of being clothed in that. So either I'm clothed in really my nakedness through self-righteousness or I can clothe myself through Christ's righteousness to cover up my nakedness. That's what he's offering this church. You've tried these things on your own. You've tried to make it on your own. It doesn't work that way. You're naked. You need to be clothed. So this church had become comfortable, complacent, self-satisfied. Really, the, the thing that made Jesus get so sick about this church was they tried to be the church without Jesus in it. That They're so self-reliant. They tried to be the church without Jesus in it. And really, that's an oxymoron. Jesus is like, without me there's none of this. Like the church is based on me. It's about me. Now, he's not on a power trip. He's not saying, hey, guys, but it's just a fact. I started the movement. It's based on me. It's all about me. And so if I'm not in it, then I don't know what you call yourselves, but it's not a church. That's the main idea here behind this church in Laodicea. So how does that translate then to our church and our lives? So if you're a Christ follower, here's how that translates. Uh, We want to be a church, and we want to be people that always rely upon God. We want to be a church, and we want to be people who always keep everything we do centered on Jesus. As a church and as people of faith, we want to always look to Jesus. We always want to be clothed in his righteousness and not our own works, because that's nakedness. As a church and as individual followers of Jesus, we never want to grow complacent. We never want to be so self-reliant that we get comfortable with where we are. I don't know about you, but I, I want to continue to grow in my relationship with Jesus. I don't want what I had three or four years ago to be kind of the, the peak. I don't want to peak at 30, okay? Like I want the rest of my life to kind of be, let's just go up, let's go up from here. Let's get better from here. Let's grow deeper from here. Let's know him more and serve him better through his spirit, by his power, through his righteousness. That's what I want my life to be. And hopefully, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you want your life to be. And as a church, we're going to celebrate five years next week. I I don't look back five years from now and say, man, those first five years were pretty good. The last five years were pretty rotten. Like, you know, that's not how I want us to be. And so we have to maintain that reliance upon the Holy Spirit. It's all through his power that anything that we do is worth anything in the first place. So now let's get to the second church that we're going to talk about. uh, And that's the church in the city of Sardis. 
So again, we've seen from last week, Ephesus, they lost their passion for God. They lost their passion for Jesus, for the mission of God. And then Laodicea gets even worse. They're so offensive, they make Jesus literally get sick. But this church we're saving for last is really what I would call the worst of all. They're in the worst condition of any of the seven churches. Let's read again their message from Jesus, and then we'll, we'll break it down for a few minutes together uh, this morning. Revelation chapter 3, this is starting at verse number 1, the beginning of chapter 3. Here's the message to the church in Sardis. Write this letter, Jesus tells John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars, represent the seven churches. He says, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So this church in Sardis is what we call a zombie church, right? Jesus says you have a reputation for being alive. There's still just a little bit of life left, but really at the core, you're dead. They're a zombie church. And it goes back really uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, who's leading a different church in Ephesus. We talked about them last week. He writes to them. He says, hey, there are some in your church that I would describe them this way. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. That's easily how this church could also be described. Similar to the last one, they they look good on the surface, but they're dead inside. They look like they have the appearance that something's going on. There's a lot of activity, but it doesn't lead to anything. And that's that's the case with even some churches today, unfortunately. Some churches exist, but are not alive. Some churches exist, but are not alive. I hope that can't be said of this one. So some churches, they have services and programs and ministries and committees and activities on the calendar, but they're not really making much of a difference. Nobody knows that they're there. If they were gone, nobody would miss them. That's what this church is like. So Jesus has sort of this warning for them, and I want to look at two different translations of this word. So he uses either the word watch or as we read in the New Living Translation, the words, wake up. So let's look at this first. The word watch here, again, using both of these for a reason specific to this church. So ancient Sardis actually sat sort of on this plateau. They sat up. They were elevated. They were, so what happened is they felt pretty safe and secure where they were. And they were known you couldn't penetrate their gates. Like you cannot overtake them because they're way up here. Nobody knows how to get through. Until in 546 BC, uh, Cyrus, who was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, he basically gives a challenge to his generals. He said, I'm going to give a hefty reward for anyone who can tell us how to get up there and overtake them. And so they have scouts always looking around, always trying to figure out how there's a path. How can we get from here to there? How is that going to work? 
And so one day, one scout was actually watching, and he was watching a guard kind of go back and forth on patrol. And so the story goes that actually the, uh, he was just kind of skipping around, like not being very serious at all, because they're way up here, never been defeated, never been overtaken, who's going to take us down? And his helmet falls off and like falls all the way down the cliff. So uh, the, the, the person who's up there on the top, he's not looking to see if anybody's scouting them. He's not being careful at all. So he just like lollygags down the path, only one way in, one way out. He walks down the path to safety to pick up his helmet and then climbs back up to his post. And the scout watches him. He goes back to Cyrus and says, hey, King Cyrus, it's my payday. You know, I know how we can get up there because he wasn't being careful. He wasn't watching. And so they, they, find, they find that path, they go up, and then they ransack the kingdom of Sardis. So Jesus tells this church, watch, be on guard. You have an enemy who's out to destroy you. You better be watching for the enemy. Because as soon as you let your guard down, as soon as you let him know your weakness, man, he's going to get in there and get after it hard and over and over until he can try to wear you down, defeat you entirely, just make you miserable. However he can get in there, he's going to try. So watch, be ready, be careful. But then in the New Living Translation here, it said they use the term wake up. So you would think, right, after that mistake, when Sardis then eventually rebuilds a couple hundred years later, you would think they've learned their lesson, right? Guess not, because they didn't train their new, their new watchmen very well. Because what happens in 214 B.C. is about the same thing that happened 300 years before, believe it or not. What happens this time is the guard who's on the post here, the, sort of the same area, up high, very confident, and he's really bored, and so he falls asleep. And just like before, the king of the other army, Antiochus, he's got scouts. They're like, dude, this is our chance. All their, all their guards are asleep. We're going to get in there and surprise attack. And that's exactly what they do. So in 214 B.C., because the guards fell asleep, uh, the city was taken again. So Jesus tells the church, wake up. Stay alert. And it's the same thing that we see with Jesus in the night he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes, his, he takes his three best. Okay, guys? He takes the best of the best of the 12 he's got and says, hey, I need my prayer people here. I need my prayer warriors here. It's about to go down. So he, he, he brings them in to pray with him. He prays for maybe about an hour, and then he goes back out and see, what, to see how they're doing, and they're asleep. He's like, you're my best guys. This is not good. This is really not good. So he wakes them up to stay awake, and he says, the, the, the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so he challenges them, hey, I need you to pray here. I need you to pray for strength. I need you to pray for, for God to just, you know, like, cover me right now, because what's about to happen, it's, it's about to go down. So he goes back and prays by himself again. He goes back and checks on them later, and guess what? They're still asleep. And so what they don't see is about a thousand Roman soldiers coming to arrest him. Now, they wouldn't have been able to do anything anyway. But the fact remains, they fell asleep when he needed them the most. Jesus is telling this church, hey, you're repeating history. I had dudes fall asleep before. It didn't go well. You're falling asleep right now. It's probably not going to go well. He's saying, stay alert. Stay awake. Wake up. So for our church, here's what I want to challenge us this morning. I want us to stay watching and stay awake. Because we also, we have opposition for us. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there's serious spiritual opposition to what we're trying to do. We have to stay alert, stay awake, and always watch. 
We don't want to be lulled to sleep by our programs and routine. We don't want like our activity within to replace like real, actual good work. We can do both, right? So it's not saying, oh, we can't do anything, any internal stuff. We'll actually highlight some of those things that we even started this year today in our year in review. So we don't we we got to cut every program besides outreach. That's not what we're saying. We, we need we need fellowship with each other. We need spiritual growth and discipleship with one another. But that can't be all that we do. When a church becomes internal, it's a zombie. Okay, so that's what Jesus is saying to us even this morning. We don't want to get bored by just going to church. That we forget we are the church. Okay, so what we do here at ten o'clock on Sundays is like one part of what we are trying to do. And so if we get into that, oh, it's a routine, oh, it's a once a day, once a week kind of thing, you know, I can give my hour and a half once a week and I'm good. Nope, that's a recipe for zombie, all right? The zombie apocalypse is upon us if that's how we treat our spiritual life. We as a church want to stay true to our purpose by staying in tune with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. It's not about just going through the motions. It's not about knee-jerk reflex reaction. It's not about getting into a rut or a routine. It's about staying fresh, staying awake, staying aware, staying alert through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our church. And the same thing is true for us personally. I don't just want you to be a Christian. There's a lot of zombie Christians in the world, all right? Because it is a routine. It's a very just religious sort of, I do this, I do this, I do this, I'm fine. Well, you're doing like little, I mean, it's great, but really, again, we got off the appearance of, of uh, like a life full of, of the Holy Spirit, but then it's pretty weak. We're, we're zombies. And so we don't want to sleepwalk our way through our spirituality. We don't want to be a zombie. We want to walk in purpose, on purpose. So uh, I'm going to wake you up this morning. <laughs> Any zombies in here I need to get rid of? So, here's what, are you ready? Here's what Jesus says to zombie churches. Boom! Oh, are you kidding me? Oh, there we go. Okay. Is that, oh, it is Nerf. So, you're trash. You're garbage, Nerf. Oh. Epic, epic failure. Epic fail. Wake up! You zombie gun! Oh, that was way better. Am I out? Watch this. Lock and load, baby! Woo! Again, I'm being Jesus right now. Just for a second, and you're being uh, you're being the church in Sardis. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying I'm... you make me sick. I want to throw this. Do it again. Please do it again. I don't have any spare bullets. I'm all out. Okay, I'm sorry. That's all I got. All right. Go ahead, make my day. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I lost count. How many bullets? Go ahead. You feel like a lucky Woo! yippee ki I can't say the rest of that line in church. All right. <laughs> so here's the thing. When you look at these two churches, it seems pretty bleak. Right? You've got a church that makes Jesus literally gag, and you've got a church that's a zombie. Not good. Like, if I have to choose between A and B, I'm going to choose C. I'm not going to... There's not a good option here. Here is... The good news. The good news is that for these two churches, and really all of them that we've talked about, there is hope. Maybe you've heard even your own spiritual life described, and you're kind of feeling a little like, ooh, yeah, like feeling a little maybe, I don't know if you want to call it guilt or conviction or, or whatever. Maybe you're seeing things even in our own church. You're like, man, we have a big weakness here. We need to strengthen and fortify that. 
whatever it is, maybe you kind of feel a little like, ugh, this is kind of deflating this morning. But there is hope. So what we see here, we'll get, we're going to close it up very quickly by looking at, uh, really, the, here's the main thing Jesus wants to illustrate or encourage these churches to do. There's three things that we'll talk about very quickly. The first thing, he says this to the church in Sardis specifically, but he, ta- he tells us that we should walk with Jesus. That's how we can renew and turn around maybe this where we lack hope. So to, to Sardis, he says, those who remain faithful to me will walk with me. Now, that is futuristic. So he is talking about in the future, those that remain faithful to him will walk with him. But here's what is also implied here. Those who will walk with him will do so because they have been walking with him. It's not like I can walk my own path my whole life and then all of a sudden I'm walking with Jesus in eternity. That's not what he's saying. It's not like I can be a zombie dead Christian and all of a sudden things are just going to, you know, like just go a different. He's like, nope, you need to walk with me like now, consistently, daily. Walk with me. And it goes back to the, I want to look, look at the emperor's new clothes again for a second. So, he was naked, but here's the thing, he was walking by himself, and when his nakedness was revealed, it was like caused this huge panic. Now, let's look at the other hand of, the other part of this. Let's go to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, like before, before sin came into the world. Adam and Eve, they were naked, but they were walking with God, walking with him. And they knew they were naked, but they weren't ashamed. So, there's a difference here. When you're walking by yourself, you're, you are exposed. There, there are things that, that can overtake you. Here's the thing. If we're walking with Jesus now, we will walk with him in the life that is to come. And that's really the, the call to discipleship. What is, how does Jesus recruit his guys? He says, follow me. I, I'm, I'm walking. I'm moving. I'm doing stuff. I'm making a difference. Do you want to be on a team or not? You can't stand still and be a part of this movement. It's called a movement, right? On purpose. It's not called a stand stillment. Okay? So Jesus is saying, hey, follow me wherever I go. And so we look at Luke chapter 9, the end of Luke 9. He's trying to recruit some other people here, and they all have excuses and reasons why they can't. Well, I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got this business to take care of. And he's like, hey, I'm walking. I'm moving. I'm not waiting for you to get everything figured out to follow me. You can do it now with things not figured out. Like his disciples didn't have things figured out, right? They were some of the biggest failures in the history of the world. And he chose them and he used them. And they did some awesome things with him and then after him. So it's not like I have to wait and have all these plans. And there's never like a never perfect time to follow Jesus. But now is always the perfect time to follow Jesus, to walk with him. The second way to kind of turn around maybe this spiritual sort of funk that we might be in is fellowship with Jesus. So to the church in Laodicea, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him as a friend. There was a famous English painter years ago uh, named Holman Hunt, and he attempted to paint this scripture. And he had this beautiful painting of Jesus knocking at a door. And he had some of his friends sort of, you know, look at it first, and he said, hey, what do you guys think about it? And one of his friends, who was also an artist, he said, I just noticed maybe one error here or one thing that was weird to me. He says, you have Jesus, you have the door, but there's no door handle. But don't you think you should add that? And Holman Hunt told his friend, he said, no, 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 the door is the human heart. The handle's on the inside. 
So, Jesus is not going to Chuck Norris your heart today. He's not going to kick it down. What does he say? If you will open it, I will come in, and I will be a friend with you. I'll spend time with you. I'll fellowship with you. And so spiritually, maybe you kind of have that door closed, or you're waiting for him to just, you know, kick that thing down, like ram his shoulder in, and he's not going to do that. So for our church, we're waiting for him to, like, do something huge. He's like, how about you just do what I'm calling you to do, and as my spirit empowers that, it'll have the effect that we want it to have. So it's not that he's going to just come in and ram things through. He's going to come in as we let him in, as we want him to fellowship with us and be our friend. There, there's hope in fellowshipping with Jesus. And then the final thing that Jesus says is we want to be one of the few. So to the church in Sardis, he says, hey, there are a few that have remained faithful. The rest of them, there does not. There's a handful that are still alive, still watching, still waiting, still being faithful to the mission. So here's what we want. We want to be like the Marines, right? The few, the proud. Not, not pride, but proud. The Marines. That, that's the kind of their catchphrase, their slogan. And it's, it's awesome, isn't it? Amen. And you know, if you are a Marine, which we have a few in the church, or if you, if you know anything about the Marines, you know why there's only a few of them. Because yeah. <laughs> not just anyone can do what Marines do. We're not all cut out for that. All right? we, can't, we can't pass the tests that need to be passed to even get into the Marine Corps. And once we're there, and we see the things that they have to see and, and do the things they have to do, we're just not cut out for that, most of us, right? So there's a few of them for a reason. So here's what Jesus says. Hey, there's a few. I need the few that are staying strong to stay strong a little bit longer. So that's the challenge for us today. Maybe you look around your life and you're like, I am one of the few in my circle of influence that are remaining faithful. I, I, I feel the pressure around me to kind of not be as sold out to Jesus. I kind of feel like I sometimes don't fit in because of my faith. I, I sometimes feel looked down upon because of my belief systems. Hey, here's the thing. Stay faithful. Remain one of the few. Don't give in. Why would I want to be like 80% of people when I could be like the top 20? Why, why would I want to fit in with the crowd when they're not going the direction that I want to go with my life? Why do I want to be like everybody else when God's called me to something better? Something greater. Not because it's anything to do with me, obviously. It's because he's calling me and you and us to do that. Something is different. It is better. It is more meaningful. And again, part of our job is that recruitment process. That as we live this life, as we're one of the few, we can recruit people around us to then join the ranks. So we can be the few, the proud, the followers of Jesus.